A note before I begin the sermon time today, I will be talking about many forms of government in the sermon today. If you need a hook to pay close attention or something that you need to just keep yourself awake, um, try to write down as many of the words that include crassy or archy at their ending. Um, and this can be your, your challenge. How many can you identify through this time of the sermon? In the time after the exodus from Egypt and before the kingdom of Israel was established, the only true theocracy existed on earth. The 12 tribes of the Hebrew people all claimed descent from a man whose name was Wrestles with God, Israel in Hebrew, and thus saw themselves as an extended family of God wrestlers, led by God directly. For about 500 years, the tribes kept the peace in their family and protected themselves from outside threat through the practice of discerning God's will and raising judges by acclamation. These judges were tasked with representing God's will for the people, overseeing justice, and advocating for the oppressed. When their task was complete, they were supposed to return to their home and family, only being called back in case of trouble on the horizon. The tribal theocracy was about as hands-off as you can get. Don't break any laws and you'll never see a judge in your lifetime. Live your life as God calls you to do. Yet, over time, people have a tendency to do what is right in their own eyes, as the Bible tells us. And so many judges were called, some with more discernment than others. And the book of Judges tells us again and again that the people cried out and God heard their cries and appointed a judge. Samuel is the last of the judges and is a very effective one. The people listen to his pronouncements and he listens to God closely and carefully. Then he sets his sons up as judges in different towns and things stop working the right way. Judgeship is not meant to be hereditary. Judges are meant to be called by God directly. The Bible tells us that Samuel's sons are corrupt, taking bribes, favoring the wealthy, showing through their actions that they are directly acting against the task of the judge to listen to God, to administer justice, and advocate for the oppressed. So the elders of the tribes come to Samuel and make a request. Now, you might expect these father leaders, patriarchs, to be conservative, to want to hold on to the old ways, but instead they ask Samuel to choose a monarch, a single ruler of all the families, a king. This is a really strange thing to do when you think about it. Going to a judge and asking for a monarch, especially with the reasoning that it's because that particular judge's kids aren't working out so well. We want a hereditary ruler because your hereditary rule isn't very good. Oh, and also because they want to be like the other nations. At this time, those other nations are likely the five Philistine city-states, city-states on the West Coast, the Assyrian Empire beyond the northern mountains, and the Egyptian Empire across the southern wastes. To the east lay the Canaanite tribes, 
who often allied with the Hebrew tribes against outside invaders, but squabbled when there was no outside threat. And beyond them, a great desert, and then Mesopotamia with the Babylonian Empire. Empires in all four cardinal directions, with the exception of the seaward direction, where the Philistine cities stood. Not exactly an empire, but still not great. When you are a small confederation of tribal entities, being surrounded by three great empires is likely quite unnerving. Even the Philistine Pentarchy, the five major city-states, were led by hereditary rulers and even consolidated their forces under a single military leader in times of war. It even seems that Egypt supported the Philistines as a form of keeping the Hebrew tribes in check and may even have originally been the one to resettle the Philistine people in that location, specifically for the purpose of keeping the Hebrew tribes in check. In all of these great empires next door, the Hebrew tribes see that individuals are accumulating great wealth. People are becoming very wealthy and very influential. Wealth, you see, doesn't amass much with individuals in tribes, since the wealth is seen as belonging to the entire family, whether that's the local family or the tribe at large, rather than to any one person. In fact, under the system that Israel was governed by, every 50 years in the Great Jubilee, the land is supposed to revert back to its original family owner, no matter who currently owns them, or when the sale took place, whether that was 50 years ago or just last year. It's supposed to go back to the original family. Now these patriarchs have seen what happens in their neighbor states when a family is declared a divine agent in the world, that is, made a line of kings or a noble family. And it can be assumed that they want that wealth for themselves, that power for themselves. Well, Judge Samuel takes their request to God and returns to the patriarchs telling them, God didn't forgive this, or forbid this. God didn't forbid this, but let me tell you what will happen. Your children will be conscripted, men as soldiers, women as cooks, for the kings and his sons. Your wealth will be diminished, as the king will take a tenth of your property as taxes, and that's in addition to the tenth of your property that should be given to God. You will be enslaved under the king instead of being free families under God. As you can tell, Samuel is warning the people that their families will be torn apart, that a monarch is not like a family patriarch, but will instead demand worship in God's place. A king will over time demand worship in place of God. That cannot, will not go well. And yet, as we know, the patriarchs insist, and Samuel eventually anoints Saul and then David as king over Israel. And as he promised, it does not go well for the people. For even though both Saul and David started out well, they both were corrupted by their positions and did evil in the world. Even Solomon, David's son, known as the greatest of the kings, had major problems and took much from the people. The Bible tells us that to feed King Solomon's court for a single day, 
This is how much food it took. 7,500 pounds of wheat flour, 15,000 pounds of barley flour, 10 grain-fed oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, and numerous deer, gazelles, roebucks, and birds. If you want to check that math, it's in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. It appears that wealth accumulated pretty rapidly in David's family, exactly as Samuel warned, because Solomon's excess meant that others in Israel had much less. Now let's jump forward a thousand years. Uh, you can imagine the kind of wavy lines from the old VCR systems or maybe just images flashed up on the screen like a DVD or Blu-ray today. The kingdom of Israel broke into northern kingdom and uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was conquered and sent into exile by the Assyrian Empire and then Judah by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire freed the kingdom of Judah as a client state. Alexander of Macedon conquered Persia, briefly freeing Judah before it was absorbed into the Hellenic world by the Ptolemies and later the Seleucids. After the Hasmonean Revolt, Judah became independent for about 100 years and then was absorbed into the Roman Empire, first as an ethnarchy or ethnic state under Herod, then a tetrarchy under Herod's four sons, and later turned into full provinces under Roman governors when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's in this last part that a wandering teacher named Jesus shows up. He has wandered all over Galilee in the far north of what was the kingdom of Israel and collected 12 disciples and numerous other followers. He's come to the town of Capernaum, near to his home village of Nazareth, and his family comes to see him. Before they get to him, though, they hear him accused of getting his miraculous healing and exorcism powers from Baal-zebul, the name of an idol worshipped by Canaanites and used as an Israelite term for the Lord of demons. Jesus isn't having any of this. He replies with the famous, a kingdom torn by civil war will not stand. A family divided on itself cannot stand. To us, this has resonance to the American Civil War when this line was quoted by Abraham Lincoln. While the Jewish people of Jesus' day would likely have been reminded of the division into the two kingdoms, and Gentiles even would have recalled not too long ago the Roman civil wars, ending only when strong Caesar Augustus came to power. The point is that this metaphor, a house divided on itself cannot stand, rings true across cultures and history. Then Jesus continues with what I think is the most awesomely weird metaphor in the entire Bible parable, if you will. Satan is a strong man whom Jesus is able to tie up before stealing all of his stuff. What stuff, you may ask? The implication is that this is all the slaves that Satan has held in bondage. Jesus is claiming to be able to free the slaves, leading people out of Egypt of bondage to sin and Satan. 
Why do we not use this story more often in talking about our faith? I mean, pirate Jesus stealing souls from Satan has such an awesome ring to it. Maybe we'll get to a VBS or a, a something down the line where we can use that title. But then Jesus gives us this strong warning. Don't look at good and claim it stems from evil. That's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Don't look at good and claim it stems from evil. That's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And now we cut back in this wonderful Mark and Sandwich to Jesus' family. And they have heard enough. Mary sends a message ahead of their arrival. Jesus, I hear you've gone crazy. Come home with us. Jesus, of course, replies with what every good child should. Absolutely, mother. What was I thinking? I'll come right home. Bam, honor your father and mother. Good, dutiful child. No? No. Actually, no. He says, who are my mother and brothers? A great repudiation of his mother. How can this one be a model for propriety? <laughs> or is it a repudiation? Jesus says, next, all who do God's will are my mother and sisters and brothers. He's widened the definition including sisters along with mother and brothers. And note who is missing, father. The implication is that God is father of all. As the Apostle Paul puts it later, I bow before the father above, the father of every family of heaven and of earth, and I pray. You see, Jesus is calling for a return to understanding that God is the father of everyone of recognizing that our family is so much wider than just those who raised you, those who you were raised with, and those you raise. There's actually a Greek pun hiding under our English translations. In, Mark, uh, in Mark's Koine Greek, the phrase used for his family, that, that phrase his family, is a euphemism that literally translates those around him, those around him an implication of intimate familial closeness that doesn't translate well in our phrase, those around him, but those around him closely, those who are closely gathered. So in the beginning of this passage, we hear, when those around him heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. And at the end, then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Those around him, meaning his family, and those around him, meaning his disciples, are one and the same. His family, which started outside, sent messages, and got ever closer, are now inside the building in this discussion, too. They are actually those around him, just as the disciples are around him. So, Samuel tries desperately to stop the monarchy from replacing God as head of the society, and Jesus is trying to get everyone to see that God never stopped being the father of all. Jesus warns the people that claiming God's powers are evil is extremely dangerous, and Samuel warns the people that lifting a human to God's status will not result in good. 
even though we now live in a time and a place under the rule of the people, demokratia in Greek, res publica in Latin, we need to remember these warnings to not lift a human up to God's place and to never claim that what is just, right, and good is actually evil. For God has promised that there is one more judge to be called, the judge of the living and the dead, the judge of the quick and the dead, the judge that calls us to remember that we are all a part of God's family and we should treat each other as such. And now, may you know God as your good parent. May Christ guide you from evil. May the Holy Spirit fill you with love for your siblings around the world. Amen.